Thanks, Sajeev. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming out with us and braving the Ironman traffic to get here. It's probably pretty hard to get here, so we really do appreciate you. Getting here must be a lot worse when you leave, so. Haha. <laughs> Anyways. If you don't know me, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. Um, before we get started, why don't we just take a moment and pray. Father, I thank you again for this day. We thank you that you've called us together. We thank you that, that you've drawn us together under your son, Jesus Christ. That you've brought us together because of the gospel. That there's good news that you've made a way for us to be made right with you. That you've made a way for us to be right with each other. And it's something that we couldn't do on our own. And it's Father, I just pray that you help us comprehend today how much you love us. Because only if we understand the love that you have for us will we be able to submit to what you have for us. So I pray that your words would be spoken this morning, that you would say what you want to say, that you'd have us hear what you'd have us hear, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, Lord, to convict us each how we need to be convicted, to grow up more like Jesus Christ and to proclaim him together in our city. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably should put this microphone on too. <laughs> so today we're in Matthew 10, and it's another long one. Chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 14, I mean 16 through 42. Before we get started, before we go there though, let's talk a little bit about this year. I just dropped a mic. Sorry. This week was another hard week for me. Uh, we've had a lot of hard weeks in 2016, or at least I have. I, the news has been crazy. And this, just this week, we watched Charlotte, North Carolina kind of erupt into these riots out of what kind of started as peaceful protests. And it's, this is following the, the police shooting of uh, Keith Scott, which was just a couple days after the, the incident in Tulsa with uh, Terrence Crutcher. And then on top of that, we had some shootings in a mall in Washington. We can't forget that there was those explosions in New York City just the week before that. I just think that one thing's really clear right now, and it's something that's just, man, it's just been driving me nuts. It's really been affecting me. But the whole world is just so divided, and there's no peace. There's just no peace. And we hear it more and more right now. Maybe we're just hearing it more than we used to. Maybe it's always been bad. That's, I think that's true too. But one thing is clear. The world is divided and there's no peace. So I wonder if you're like me, if you kind of like to take a mulligan on 2016 and just start over. I mean, who wants to forget it? Like who wants to go back to peace, right? But I think this morning as we get into, into chapter 10, we're going we're gonna to see that that's not an option. Like not only because it's we never really had it, but it's just something we can't go back to, even if that's what we wanted. The peace that we had to go back to isn't really peace at all, right? It's kind of a false sense of peace. It's a delusional living. It's apathetic to all the brokenness that's around us. And it's kind of a living with our heads in the sand. And, and like we just sang about it's on Christ's solid rock we stand. We, we learned this in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says to build your life on the rock and you know, one thing that I really thought about this week is that, like, a life built on the rock has no sand in which to bury its head. 
It's something that we can't do. We can't just go back and bury our head and forget about all this stuff and just find some comfort. That's not what we're called to do. Living apathetically in exchange for a false sense of peace is really nothing more than dying a slow death divided from one another. I mean, we, can, we could slowly go to our graves, kind of comfortable, and when we get to our graves, we could lie next to people that look like us and that believe the same things as us or at least went to the same churches as us or the same whatever as us. But in the end, we'd be dead. And I think that the whole life we would have lived getting there, just being comfortable and not having to deal with any of the issues that are, are dividing us, would just be a dead way of living also. We will have found our life only to lose it. And this chapter, in, in, in Jesus' commissioning of the disciples, I think we see Jesus came calling us to something different, that he said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I just want to talk more about what that means today. See, a leader worth following will always call people to risk everything for something that's truly better. What's the point in following somebody if they're not leading you to anything better than what already is? If we're sticking our heads in the sand or if we're turning off the news, if we're plugging our ears or tapping like our ruby red slippers and trying to get back home, I think we have to wake up and listen. It's time for Christians to wake up and listen. You know, Reggie said last week that to be a follower of Jesus is to be on mission and that you can't be a follower of Jesus and not be on mission. And this time, this, this time that we live in, this time of division and brokenness is a time for us as Christians to be delivering the gospel message to a world that's it's just desperately in need of him. And it's so evident. Now, if you've been following the narrative of Matthew with us, we started this back at Christmas during our Advent series. I don't know if you remember. We started in Matthew back in, in the Advent season, and we started with, you know, the events that led to the birth of Christ. We talked about how Jesus came, uh, the Son of God came to earth in a, and was born to a virgin, uh, it just in a totally unexpected way. It's a great story, and that's how we kicked this... That's how Matthew starts his story, and that's how we kicked off the book of Matthew, obviously. And then we saw John the Baptist as he came preparing the way and, uh, and baptizing Jesus as Jesus begins his ministry. And then we saw Jesus calling people to follow him uh, and, and beginning to instruct them during our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And now we're in this series that we're calling a, calling a leader worth following. Uh, and it's just as Jesus is leading his followers into action as he continues to proclaim and demonstrate that he is who he says he is and that he's a leader worth following and that we need to get on board. And I just bring that up because it's just, just a side note to talk about kind of where we're going in Matthew and understand why we're going the way, dealing with the way we are. Here's something that we know. Is that something happens in us when we enter a story. It's kind of like we were built for it. Right? And the book of Matthew is a narrative. It's a story. And when a story resonates in us, when we actually start getting the story, and we get to these pivotal moments in the story, and all of a sudden we can like feel it, we can feel the high stakes of it, right? That's what causes us to like watch the movies and stick with the movies or read the book and stick with the movies. That's what makes us want to march into Mordor and throw the ring in the fire ourselves. You know, all of a sudden we can come face to face with the White Witch in Narnia. Maybe we could follow Mel Gibson into battle in Braveheart or the Patriot. You know, either one. I'll always follow Mel Gibson. Maybe you would 
get to the point of story where you'd go into a dark, scary place, even to where you would brave the upside down for those Stranger Things fans out there. Something happens in us when we hear story. Something happens in us when we get to those pivotal moments in the story. And I bring this up because we're, we're at that point in Matthew in chapter 10 where the story begins to press in so that we feel the high stakes of what's going on. In the end, Matthew's not recording just some facts, and he's not just telling a good story. And it's not even just a story that's like worth feeling a little bit. He's actually telling our story, right? And the story ends with an actual call on our life that's actually asking us to go do something that's hard. This is the point in the story where we begin to feel those high stakes. He's telling our story. You know what's coming, right? You know what comes later in the book of Matthew. It's going to get a lot harder before it gets any better. And in the end, Jesus doesn't just commission the disciples here in chapter 10, and he's not just commissioning the disciples in the Great Commission. He's commissioning us. Like, this is our story and has implications about who we are and what we're about and how the gospel sends us. If we miss the power of the gospel story as we go through Matthew, I'm afraid we'd miss the power in our salvation that will send us out with the gospel. So we're going to start like really leaning into this story a little bit more. Like I said, this is a pivotal moment. This is the, this is the place where we begin to feel that there's actually something here that's it's high stakes, something real that's going to either cause us to say, never mind, I'm not in this one, or I'm on board, let's go. So in this current series that we're in, A Leader Word Following, we've seen Jesus clearly define his mission to deal with sin and transform sinners. And we've seen that to follow him is to be on mission with him, and that you can't follow him and not be on mission with him. And then this week we have some insight on what it actually looks like to be on mission with him, right? This is the one thing I want us to get. Don't leave without getting this. It's the challenge that I think we have to hear today. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what Jesus says in verse 39 of chapter 10. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what makes being on mission with the message of Jesus so dangerous? That's the first question I think we have to ask. What's so offensive about the gospel that it makes people want to hurt others? What's so offensive about the gospel that the world wants to kill the people that will deliver the good news? It's certainly the case. I mean, not only did Jesus' message eventually take him to the cross, and that's coming in Matthew, but Jesus also warns the disciples of the dangers here in verse uh, 17 through 18. He says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And many of these disciples would eventually themselves be martyred to advance the kingdom and to advance the message of the gospel. What makes the gospel, that is the good news of the person and work of Jesus, so offensive? I think that there's at least three things. I don't don't think that this is an exhaustive list of things that make the gospel uh, 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 offensive and divisive, but there's three things at least. The gospel compromises our comfort, the gospel challenges the status quo, and the gospel says that nobody's right, that we're all wrong, and that Jesus is the only way. People like their comfort, right? We here like our comfort. Uh, But in order for the good news to be truly good, I think that we have to recognize that what we have isn't already the best. 
And so we actually have to realize that, uh, and recognize that what we have isn't really as good as we pretend it, it actually is. And so we have to admit that our comfort doesn't equal true peace. Like whatever we're defining as comfort, whatever we stay in because we feel like it's comfortable, maybe that doesn't actually equal true peace. And that the living comfortably in the world is often at the expense of others. Listen, the gospel, uh, I think, calls us to recognize how our comfort and our privileges uh, stand in the way of another person's livelihood. That's offensive. Because nobody wants to think that they're that bad, that they would take something at the expense of somebody else. I think some of us here in this room may take offense to the idea that some of their comforts and privileges come because of our whiteness, of our skin. That's a big topic right now, right? White privilege, you may have heard that. Uh, It's possible that we could be so offended by that idea uh, that we refuse to acknowledge any any of the truth behind it, that we may refuse to recognize it, even to the point that we're unable to mourn with people who hurt. Because it'd feel like we're taking the blame if we were able to mourn with people who hurt. And that's offensive. I feel like maybe we could easily just say, hey, I'm not mad at anybody, I'm just trying to live my life. And refuse to deal with that. But the gospel isn't good news that's just meant to be kept to oneself. In fact, and it's not just meant to help us live our life, right? It's for other people. If you really hear the gospel, I don't think it can be kept. Jesus calls us to risk everything for somebody else instead of turning a blind eye to those who are at risk so that we can live comfortably. Now, I'm be honest, I think we could just do like a whole sermon on that, right? But that's not where we're at. I, think, I do think that we need to hear that the gospel calls us to recognize and, and calls us to act out of those of us who are white, calls us to, to, to recognize and deal with our white privilege. And I don't want to lose that point, but that's not what today's about either, right? Uh, today isn't a message about race. It's a message to and for every follower of Jesus, to and for every follower of Jesus in this room and to every follower of Jesus in our church. So I'd assume, there's one thing I can't assume, I'd assume that most of us in this room are from the U.S., have grown up here, are, pretty, are American, right? Uh, and certainly we may have endured some struggles, but for the most part, come on, we live pretty comfortably. And I would just argue that we live pretty comfortably, possibly at the risk or at the expense of some others around the world that we're not even aware of. My point is that we're all privileged in that regard. I hope that's not too offensive, but I kind of do. I don't know. We're all privileged. I often wonder how we should respond to it, to our privilege. I wonder how we should respond to the fact that, honestly, I'm living a little bit of a comfortable life, whatever that means, at the expense of somebody else, but I often choose to ignore it also. Like, I kind of realize it, but then I just, uh, I can't really deal with that, right? What comforts are we buying with our money that comes at the cost of somebody else in the world? I once heard a statistic that said that Americans spend enough on ice cream each year to provide clean drinking water for the entire world. I heard that from Rob Bell. I feel like I should quote him because he's the one that said it, but don't go read it. That's not the point, right? Uh, And don't lose focus because I said that. I heard a statistic that said that Americans spend enough on ice cream each year to provide clean drinking water for the whole world. Now, whether that's true or not, it's it's probably in the ballpark. 
What if Jesus came and told us that we were spending too much on ice cream? Would be offended? Uh, what if Jesus came... What if, what if Jesus came saying that you're spending too much on our cars and on your housing and on your air conditioning, which is going right now? <laughs> I have to be honest. I think that those are some challenges that we need to deal with. Like, we really need to think about those things. Some of this feels offensive to say, honestly. I, I hesitated even writing it. I hesitate even saying it. But it's offensive. I think we all want the caveat when we go into these things. We want the caveat that says well, we can still reach the world and we can still care for people and keep the comforts that we have, right? We can still stay comfortable and reach the world. I just, I, I'm not going to put that, I know that it's there and we want to say it and there might, no, let's just not, let's not put that caveat on it. Caveat on it. The gospel's offensive. It calls us to deal with how our comforts are coming at the expense of others. But Jesus sends the disciples out in a radical fashion. Not radical as in taking up arms, but as in laying them down and giving up everything that we have in order to make Jesus known to everybody. So where we find comfort in the world, what the world would define as peace, and we find comfort there, and it's at the expense of somebody else, Jesus calls us to give up all our comforts and to give up all our peace so that somebody else can hear, so that somebody else can have it. You see how they're two different things. The gospel's offensive because it compromises our well-deserved comforts, right? I've had a hard week. I deserve a little bit of ice cream, right? But the gospel says that we only deserve death. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus comes telling us, that we only deserve death, that we don't deserve ice cream at the end of a hard week. I'm not telling you you can never have ice cream, but you don't deserve it. The gospel says that we aren't right in how we live, that we're wrong, and that Jesus is the only one who is right. And his call to lay down our everything for the sake of advancing the gospel to those who need to hear it is the, actually the only way to life for each one of us. It's offensive because it challenges the status quo and it calls us to radical change. So Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So that's what makes the gospel offensive. That's nice. What makes the gospel worth delivering in spite of the dangers? I have a friend who's about my age, and he has a, a, young, a young boy. He's probably like seven or eight, and this is a couple years ago. But he took him to this uh, indoor like, play park for kids. It's in another town. It's really big, and it's awesome, right? And in this place, there's all sorts of ball pits and slides and things like that that the kids can play in. But there's one slide that's like really super tall and big. And it, you know, it'll, you fly down the thing, and all these kids are doing that. And uh, he takes his kid, and he's going on the little slides and doing all the, the activities. But he really kind of wants to try out that super slide. But it's also very intimidating because it's very high. But after seeing so many kids come down it and, like, loving it, he eventually gets up the courage to go up the slide. So he waits in line, and then he climbs up this ladder, and he gets to the top or climbs up the stairs and gets to the very top, and he freezes. I think we've all been there before, maybe not on that slide, but like, for me, it's the top of a ski slope. That's ridiculous, right? It was fun getting up there. I don't really want to come down. Uh, it could be whatever, you know, at the top of the slide, 
on the zip line, whatever you're about to jump off into that's terrifying. Why do we put ourselves in those situations? But anyways, he's up at the top and he freezes and he's scared to go down. And so his dad's down at the bottom and he's watching and he sees his kid freeze and he sees the line piling up at the bottom. And so knowing that this is something his son will love doing and he wants to help him do it, he climbs up the stairs to his son and he just takes a few moments with him and he says, you know, you know that I love you. Um, and you can trust me. I wouldn't send you to do something that's going to hurt you. I'm trying, I want you to do things that you'll love. And you can trust me, right? Basically, right? And after a little bit of a talk, the boy kind of comes around and he trusts his dad that he'll have a good time and it's worth braving the, the slide. And he turns around and he goes down. Comes up with a big grin on his face and then keeps doing it over and over again. What makes the gospel worth delivering in spite of the dangers? We'll come back to that story in a second, but I think it comes from what Paul refers to in Philippians 4, 7 as the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. You know, I got the peace, of, the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. You guys know that song? It's from there. It's the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And oddly enough, here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus almost seems to like, contradict that. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. But what Paul is referring to is an internal type of peace, whereas Jesus here is referring to an external peace. And there's a big difference. Because even in the same passage, Jesus also promises peace uh, here in in this commissioning. And it's the internal kind of peace that that Paul talks about. It's the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And he says it in, in chapter 10, verse 29 through 31. When he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So see, it's, it's that peace, the peace that comes from knowing whose hands that you're in. Just as the little boy was able to trust his daddy and make it down the slide, that's the kind of peace that makes the gospel worth delivering, no matter what the danger Because what we've come to know is that even though nobody's right and everybody's wrong, even me, even you, God stepped in for us and has shown us mercy and he's called us his and we're his children and he loves us and he cares for us and and all the comforts that we pursue apart from him and all the peace that we pursue apart from him, we know it's never satisfied us if we get real. It's never actually given us any real security. As a matter of fact, we just keep trying to find more comfort and more peace because we don't have any security and it hasn't satisfied us. But he's satisfied us and he's secured us forever. And he's proven time and again that wherever he leads us will be good for us. He has our good at heart, and he knows what he's doing, and he's capable of doing it. He's a leader worth following. He's a, he's a friend. He's not our enemy. Where the world will buy comfort and security at the cost of others, Jesus freely gives peace and security that leads us to risk everything in order to take the good news of Jesus to others. He gives us the eyes to see the needs of others and that they will always be worth the risk of our own persecution. Without the eyes of Christ, we can't see, we can't even hardly see the needs of others beyond our own wants and comforts and and needs. But with the eyes of Christ, we can all of a sudden see them and we can see how it's so worth giving up everything we have. And it'll always be the risk of our own persecution. 
Jesus gives us a peace beyond understanding that makes us brave beyond understanding. Jesus gives us a peace beyond understanding that makes us brave beyond understanding. It's gospel peace that brings gospel bravery. And what I mean by that is that it's a peace that's rooted and found in the good news of Jesus Christ, of the person and work of Jesus Christ, that gives us a bravery that's able to go forward with the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel peace that gives gospel bravery. It's the kind of peace that gives us the courage to break out of our comfort zone and to change our status quo to bring good news of justice to bear on the world that we live in to the point and enough so that, we're willingly, that we would willingly lose our life and our livelihood for the advancement of the gospel. Here in this passage, and I've said it already, I'll say it again, Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Maybe we won't lose our life. Maybe that's extreme. But I kind of believe it's not extreme. We could lose our life. In the context of the time of Jesus in the early church, it was very real for sure. We know that from the story. We already know that it cost people their life. In our day, it may not seem so dangerous, and in our country and in our city, it may not seem so dangerous. The real danger is for missionaries, right? Maybe that's why we like, look up to missionaries so much, is because they're so radical, and because we can send them out to do the dangerous work for us, always stay here comfortably. They go to the hard places, they take the hard risks for us. It's odd, though, because I still kind of hate it when they ask me for money. Listen, it's not okay to put it all on those who leave the country. It's not okay to call some missionaries and send them out overseas to hard places and taking the hard risks and maybe give a donation and just look them up. It's not okay. It might actually get hard here, too, if we were missionaries where we are. I think that's the point. It might actually get hard here if we were confronting the world with the gospel, if we were taking the message of the gospel to the world here, the opposition might get heavy. Reggie said last week that we can't be a follower of Jesus and not be on mission with him. You get that that means that we can't be a Christian and not be a missionary? You can't be a Christian and not be a missionary. Those are not two different things. I want to read this excerpt from a letter, and it's just a little bit lengthy, but it's the letter from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as he wrote from the, 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 the letter from Birmingham Jail. I'm just going to read a, a little piece of this for you. So there was a time when the church was very powerful, and the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. And small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. And he goes on to say that things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. 
So often it's an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structures of the average community is consoled by the church's silence and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. I read that because I'm afraid that we American Christians don't really know Jesus all that well. Because we seem very reluctant to give up any external peace, any comfort, for the sake of leading people to Jesus here at home. And I'm not just talking about y'all, I'm talking about me. I'm concerned that I'm so reluctant to give up external peace and any comforts for the sake of leading people to Jesus here at home. I read, I read this letter because I believe that our world today is in desperate need of a church that's so intoxicated with the peace of God that we're unable to be intimidated by the threat of our own physical discomfort and that will we'll bravely bring the message of Jesus to bear on the realities of our present world and in our present context. And Jesus calls us saying, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we absolutely must go if we're going to be that church. And it's got to be at the risk of our livelihood and maybe even our lives. But there is something else here. Nobody's calling you to go radically throwing caution to the wind, right? Read this, and it's how this passage starts. Matthew 10, 16 through 18. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And he's not saying this to soften the blow, and I'm not reading it to soften the blow. The gospel's offensive. It's calling us to go. We're still going among wolves. But it's to advise wisdom. We must go, but we also must be strategic in how we go. We have to be wise as serpents. Be strategic. Be clever, right? Uh, think through how you're going so that you actually get to deliver the gospel and for the most impact. But also don't be so snake-like that we can't be like innocent doves. Do not become so cautious, so paranoid. I like how that astronomically intimidated. Do not become so astronomically intimidated that you're unwilling to be vulnerable enough to actually deliver the gospel. We must go, but we must be wise. And this is what I want for us to do. Uh, we have to go. We have to allow the gospel to get to offend us a little bit, to call us into some sort of action. But we need to think through this, and we need to be strategic, and we need to pray through this kind of thing. And this is an opportunity just to lean into your church family, to lean into your missional communities, to lean into these issues together as you navigate how God is calling you and how God would, would lead you. Talk to each other and pray with each other. We've got to ask the question, where do we go? Right? So very practically, where do you and I go and what risks do we really need to take? First, I just want to clarify that it starts with the gospel. It starts with gospel transformation. No amount of going or doing or risking anything or giving up comforts, none of that is going to buy you righteousness. None of that's going to make you right. 
That's not the point. It's about gospel transformation. When Jesus says in verse 1032, and a little bit after that, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. I just want to be clear. That's not, that's not about earning a place in heaven. That's, that's a fruit thing. Jesus has already been talking about fruit things with his followers, right? That an apple tree bears apples, and an orange tree bears oranges, and a child of God will bear the message of Jesus. If we don't bear the message of Jesus, then we're not of Jesus. Take note, though, because this good news that's transform- that, that brings us uh, transformation, that transforms us, will likely offend us first. The gospel will probably offend you before it transforms you. So we've got to ask, where are you shutting Jesus out because it's too threatening? Where are, where are we closing the gospel out because it offends us a little bit too much or it comes a little too close to home or it threatens some of our comforts and our sense of peace? So first, it starts with gospel transformation. And second, you have to go to your circle of influence. We in this room each have to go to our circles of influence. I've heard people talk about how we need another Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for the, the stuff that's going on today or that we need like another world leader who can like do something about all these world issues and divides that we have. I'm not really convinced that we need a, another Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or any other leader though. I think that what the issues of the world today needs is just Jesus. He's a leader worth following and he's leader enough. It's not that we need one single person He'll lead each of us to himself. We've talked about this over and over and over again, right? That he'll lead each of us to himself and lead us to lead others to himself. That's our vision statement at Redemption Church, right? To lead people to Jesus who lead people to Jesus. So I don't want us to think that you have to have a large platform or a large following and some, or be some sort of big influential to be able to go. Jesus isn't searching the world for influentials. He calls the ordinary. He's the influencer, not you. Think of the disciples that he called. I mean, these are nobodies for the most part. They're not big influencers. They're fishermen and tax collectors, despised even, some of them. And he called them to leave everything and follow him, and they did, and he transformed who they were, and he influenced change through them, and he reached the world through them. For some of us, he would transform us and use us right where we live. He would have us influence our children and our husbands and our wives, and he'd have us influence our neighbors or our coworkers or the people we go to school with or maybe just some people in our missional community or around our missional community. He'd have us, he'd transform us and use us right where we are. And for others, he'll transform us and send us elsewhere. Both are missionaries. So both are missionaries. Jesus is calling his followers onto mission. And to both, Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we who say we follow Christ would follow him, to sat- follow him into saturating our small circles of influence with the gospel, he'd saturate the whole globe with the gospel. Like, that can't be an excuse that we don't have a voice big enough to reach the world. We have a voice big enough to reach those in our small circle of influence and to deliver the message of Jesus, no matter how divisive or offensive it is, because we know it's good news. 
And he makes us brave. This week we go back and I just want you to go back and read Matthew 10. I just go back and read this chapter. It's known as the missionary discourse. And it's, to, it's part of this story. And like I said, it's this pivotal moment in the story of Matthew. Where Jesus is like, follow me, follow me. Like this is, I've come, God is with you. Follow me, look, this is who I am. Now it's going to impact you. And then from here on out, it gets really hard. Like we got some really hard stuff to go through. And we know that on the other side of that, that's another commission to go and reach the whole world. And we know that the, those who were commissioned reached way beyond their, their, their little circles of influence and their influence grew, right? And that some of them gave their lives and the people after them gave li- their lives. And in the end, the reason we have the gospel today is because somebody else followed Jesus to give everything and to lose their life so that they might find it. So go back and read Matthew 10. Read the missionary discourse. Hear Jesus say, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I want you to pray. I want you to ask him for peace that passes understanding and a gospel peace that gives a gospel bravery and invite him to confront those areas of life where you'd find the gospel offensive. We kind of have to ask him to hurt us a little bit and ask him to lead you to submit to him in those areas, knowing that he's good and that he loves you and that he knows better than you. And then take a little time this week. Reggie asked last week that we would take a, take a little time and write down five people who we knew that were lost that we could take the gospel to and just begin to pray for them. And I believe he even asked us to go and share the gospel with them. If that didn't happen, it's okay. Let's do it some more this week. Like actually spend some time in prayer, considering your circle of influence, write some names down, pray for some people, take actual steps at identifying your circle of influence. And then ask Jesus to help you be brave enough to take the gospel to them no matter what. I think that's the call of this week. I think that's where we have to to leave off. Is that Jesus here, yes, it's a pivotal moment, and he's asking for a lot but he gives us the peace that can make us brave. And we actually do need to be brave. Our situation isn't as comfortable and as peaceful as, peaceful as we think it is. It's kind of a false sense of peace. We're going to move into a time of reflection and a time of response, which we do every Sunday. And there's a few things that we'll do. Um, the band will come back up and they'll lead us in worship. And this is a time where you can sit and you can reflect and you can pray and you can respond to God. You can stand and you can sing and you can worship him as well. We'll have some people praying in the back. They'll have some lanyards on that invite, that say, can we pray for you? Uh, and they'll be happy to pray with you and hear where you're at and how God's dealing with, working on you or whatever. And they'd love to pray for you. Um, we're also going to come and we're going to take communion. And what we do is we come down the center aisle. Uh, there'll be people here serving. Come down the center aisle. And then you could take it, dip, take the bread, dip it in the wine and the juice and then go this way. And when we do this, it's a reminder that we believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's done what he said he would do and that his news is better. It's better than our news and it's, he's right and we're wrong and he's saving us and he's transformed us and he's continuing to transform us. And when we do this, we're like reminding ourselves of that and we're reminding each other of that. We're, make, we're proclaiming the gospel to one another. So if you're a Christian and you believe, we invite you to come. If you're not a Christian, we don't, we don't want you to come because like, you can't say that and we don't want you to say something that you can't say. But instead... That's not because we don't like you or we don't want you here. 
is because we want you to hear what we're saying in our actions. We believe that Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose again because he knows better and that he came to make, give you life and to make you whole and to repair you back to the way you were created to be, back to the, the right uh, image bearer of, of, of God. So as we do that, we invite you to come and take. And then also there's a giving basket in the back where uh, we, can, we can give uh, offerings and tithes uh, as we remember that we can trust him, that he's got our finances too, and this is a way where we can, we can lean into God on that and make a practice of trusting God and embracing that peace that makes us brave and courageous to follow him as a leader worth following. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you for this day. Um, thank you for Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that... Uh, you really press into us for what is best for us. Lord, I, I believe you just refuse to leave us as we are, that you, you want what's best for us, that you want to press in on us and transform us, that you came to change us. We thank you for that. We thank you that you love us that much. I pray, Father, this morning that we would begin to get that even a little bit more, begin to comprehend just how great your love is for us, and how great your compassion is towards us, and your mercy towards us, that you weren't apathetic, that you came for us, and you made a way for us to be made right with you, that you made a way for us to stop dying and to start living. Father, I pray that we would hear the good news this morning, that we would remember that, and that it would, be, uh, that it would send us out with a message of peace and a message of hope for those who don't know. And we pray that your spirit would be at work amongst those in our circles of influence, that the way would be prepared for them to hear the gospel and be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen.